Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Joey Bright, a second waiver of the American feminist movement who came out as a lesbian in 1971 at the age of 16. Very gender nonconforming and the rebel child in a small family and the second daughter of an immigrant Latina mother, Bright grew up loving the cinema and large photo format magazines like Look. Influenced by Gordon Parks and Diane Arbus, photography and advertising would inform her approach to many things as an adult. Active in community organizing and event production for years, Bright used these skills in the growingly visible lesbian community during the 1970s up until that community disappeared through the infiltration of Big Pharma and the social contagion of the gender ideology movement. Bright tells me that it has become her mission to create a platform for other rebels to share their voices and also give active pushback to the medicalization of youth utilizing the basic American tradition of peaceful protest. Bright is a house painter, and she says that she really believes that excelling in a skilled labor trade helps hone an appreciation for understanding civic responsibility and building grassroots networks. I welcome Joey Bright to Savage Minds. I'm so happy to have you on the show after seeing so many of your actions and reading your wonderful article last fall. In fact, I'd like to lead with that, if I might. You sure. wrote a piece for Uncommon Ground Media entitled The Four Horsemen of the Gender Critical Apocalypse, wherein you criticize this concept of the good trans person that has been embraced by many, both on the pro-trans side of the debate and on the gender critical side, paradoxically. This piece caused some waves amongst quite a few feminists. You go after Blair White, Scott Nugent, Fionn Orlander, and Buck Angel. And you write, I know it's risky, but I feel the time is right to call this critical moment out for what it is. We've all been groomed and we need to recognize that. So to make my point really clear, I've chosen to compare these individuals to the prominent familiar dolls found in our very gendered pop culture. I was a bit taken aback when I read about your having been attacked. I didn't see the attacks firsthand because some of the women making the criticisms of you blocked me some time ago. But I heard about it and I have to say I wasn't surprised because when I heard the names of the people attacking you, these were the same women who had attacked me a group of what I deem to be bourgeois feminists who feel themselves sort of the self-appointed grand poobahs of the feminist movement. <laughs> they never bothered to ask us plebs if we wanted to vote for them, however. So I was speaking recently to Jody Barr from the Workers' Party of Britain earlier this week, and she poignantly critiques the way feminism has been hijacked by these bourgeois types whom, if you notice on social media, have created a closed circle around themselves. They block any disagreement, including by women and lesbians with whom they don't agree. They don't discuss class. They tokenize women of color. They use them, like in a phrase, the same way the TAs do, but then they sort of, these women of color are always absent, ironically. And then they tend to go after women like you who won't compromise on the fact of sex, who don't exceptionalize the trans folks who are nice. And many people have friends who identify as trans. I believe transgender is a medical fiction. We don't have any evidence of a transgender brain. There has been nothing confirmed by science, neurology, none of it to show that any of the bunk that has been claimed over the recent years is true. So I know that you are also of the ilk of more radical readings of this nonsense and you call it out. 
and you have been punished by many of the women who have punished me and punished many others. Can you talk about your article and what people objected to and how you defend that? Well, thank you for having me on the show, first off. And I didn't know if this was going to, I didn't know it was going to turn into a comedy bit, Julian, really. This is, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've had to hold back here. Well, the whole thing about why I even chose to do it, it was an idea that while I was in the midst of really in the throes of the last few months of what had been over a year at that point, planning for this conference of can I get a witness and creating that. And I'd been talking to people all over the world. Once COVID hit, I realized this was not a conference that was gonna happen in one physical location in the San Francisco Bay area, but rather it was gonna become worldwide now. So that really opened it up. And I started speaking to people all over the world, asking them, you know, following them, looking at Twitter. I'm assuming that that's where you were talking about being blocked because I know you're very active on Twitter, but between Twitter and, Instagram and um, Facebook. It's how I got a lot of people was really moving around and actually making phone calls and whatnot. And during the conversations that I was having with people, um, some of them would say, oh, you know, for your guest, you should invite Scott Nugent. And I didn't know who Scott Nugent even was. And this was early on. This was like March. I mean, I literally, COVID hit. I was running a movie theater. I was out of work, that was it. And I was full-time now going to be um, trying to do this thing. And I kind of wrote the name down and sort of set it aside. And then someone else, oh, you should talk to Scott Nugent. I see this Christ. So um, I put it aside again. All of a sudden in May, I happened to be looking at Jennifer Billick's page on Facebook. And I saw somebody yelling at her as much as you can see, you know, somebody yelling on Facebook. And uh, I saw this tiny little image and I thought, well, who's this guy? And then I looked and I just simply wrote something, you know, I made a a post something like, oh, you know, this is mansplaining or somebody doing the yelling or something like that. And then I, I decided, I looked at my notes and I decided to look at Scott and I was just, oh my God, it reminded me of why my lesbian community in the San Francisco Bay area And I mean culture. When I say community, I'm talking about culture. It became completely decimated. And I'll backtrack a bit. It became completely decimated in large part because of a very influential character that would come in and out of town by the name of Susan, also known as Buck Angel. And Buck Angel came in and that was one of the sort of bad memories that I had about watching younger, lesbians a little younger than myself and my own age, who became enraptured with this idea of this sort of celebrity, if you will. And when I, that was already in my past. And when I started examining who this Scott Nugent person was, I started looking at her Twitter feed. I started looking at what she was doing on Facebook. She had lots of fights with people. And I thought, these are testosterone rages. And that's something that I have been sort of watching for years having witnessed firsthand much of my community start taking unregulated testosterone and um, women just desperate to grow little mustaches and, and, you know, beards and try to, you know, have that more square jaw and all that. And of course, get a double mastectomy. 
And I just see these, it was like walking ghosts in a way. It was a, a San Francisco became a town that was just filled with um, predominantly white former lesbians. And um, so Scott Nugent, I, I saw her and went, oh no, this is, this is absolutely bizarre. And then I started reading more about her life and I sort of tucked that aside. And of course, I didn't want to invite her to be a guest in Can I Get a Witness, even though Can I Get a Witness was always designed to have a large group, a, a much larger landscape of different people that it had different experiences dealing with this industry of gender ideology. People that had been canceled, so-called canceled, fired, um, attacked, physically attacked, uh, threatened and all that. And I had, I ended up having like 27 guests, I think at this point. And it was a, and it was a wide range. And I did not want to have somebody who I feel is a huge hypocrite. And in the back of that, I must say that something that set Scott aside for me in a very different way was the fact that this wasn't a young teenager who got wrapped up on Tumblr. And this was somebody who I also saw admit that she didn't suffer for a long time, actually in a way that I had. I was a tomboy. I was somebody that, you know, grew into my lesbianism. I came out in 1971. I was 16 years old. And by the time I did move to the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, there was, I, one of those second waivers that there was a thriving culture. And yet I kept feeling like I was different. And I was one of those that believed that maybe I was trapped in the wrong body. I ended up going through all kinds of social things around that, but I did end up uh, finding a therapist who I actually thought I wanted to find what I thought was a butch lesbian therapist who would see me and she would, the word affirmation wasn't even there, but I thought that I would find somebody who would say, oh yeah, you're a good candidate. Let's sort of move you towards transsexualism. That's what I was still, you know, I, I knew at the time. And thank goodness she told me what she did, which is, you know, you are a lovely butch woman. She said, you are not a man. You're never going to be a man you're gonna hurt your body and I wanna help you. And I'd like to help you figure out how do you fall in love with yourself? How do you feel good about being in the body that you're in? And this is back in the early eighties. So you can imagine, um, I know the time that Buck ended up starting experimenting with testosterone and all that, that was you know, later, later on. But I did know somebody else personally, a woman named Jamie who became Jameson Green. I don't know if you're familiar with, with her. Uh, Jameson Green was one of the first really um, to make this transformation, if you will, very smart and had, um, I, think the, I think the finances in the beginning, but um, I don't know all the particulars of that, but she ended up writing a book called Becoming a Visible Man. And I thought, well, that's honest. That's exactly what, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And um, anyway, so skip to the future, and here I am. Scott Nugent became one of those people I sort of scooted aside. And as I was growing the roster and creating more what this conference was going to look like in this new medium for me, I had not been doing webinars and online conferences or anything. Everything I had in my mind was very old school. It was 
producing actual conferences, you know, day long and all that. So everything was transferring in my head. While that was going on, I had collected a lot of other names from people. And Scott really was an influence along with Blair White, because I started with Blair White and writing about Blair White. And I found the two of these people being constantly, and this was mostly on Facebook, and then I saw it on Twitter, where I saw these women who call themselves gender critical or would say that they were critical about gender, they were gender abolitionists, that, that was one, and they were constantly posting videos of Blair White, in particular Blair White. And one of the last things that got me, and I had already started writing about Blair White, was a woman on a gender critical uh, women's page, you know, on Facebook. And I don't know, it must have been the umpteenth one. And she posted this video of Blair White. I can't, it doesn't even remember. It's insignificant which one it was. But her posting of it, she said, this is so important. I wish more men would listen to her. And I just lost it. It was like that. I just went over the edge. And so I wrote some more about Blair White, who actually doesn't offend me as much because I guess Blair reminds me of a lot of uh, gay men that I used to hang out with years and years ago, who, while they had donned this, you know, done a very good job with their secondary uh, sex characteristics, they always knew they were men. And they never tried to pretend really anything else. Role playing that, that, that happened in private relationships. I didn't care about that. Both lesbians and gay men did things like that. It wasn't a big deal. This was something different. And I knew that because I've been sort of watching what I call the transborg since the mid 80s um, and watching the loss of my culture and my community all along the West Coast, by the way, um, I, I just, I'd been working on those two people and then I'd started writing about Buck because she in particular had affected so many women in San Francisco. And then one day out of the blue, it was on July 3rd, and I happened to go onto Twitter and I saw that Scott had launched a crowdfunder and she wanted to go on a tour, you know, with her trans people and do this whole thing with the kids which really got me because another project I had in the back of my mind was to go after gender clinics and protest in front of gender clinics. I knew that they were growing. I knew they were on the rise. And to see that this woman who at age 41, 42, and as a mother, and that was the thing that really tipped me over the edge with Scott because I thought no matter what we want in our lives or what we think about ourselves or what we'd like to be or do or whatever, the idea of willingly undergoing one of the most dangerous life-threatening operations that anybody could possibly think of doing while you are a responsible adult for three lives was abhorrent to me. And so that set me, you know, really, so I had the three of them. I had Buck Angel and Blair and now Scott and this crowdfunder. And I just thought she's a grifter. I mean, aside from it, from you know anything else I thought about her, I thought I'm gonna watch this. this is, she's a grifter. That was, I think, maybe the third crowdfunding attempt I had seen. I know that she had more than one up. And then the next day, that was July 3rd, Friday. And then of course, I'm an American. The next day was a Saturday. It was uh, July 4th. And I had been seeing Fionn Orlander 
on and off over Twitter and just um, saw how there were a number of these so-called, you know, gender critical women again, who really very, they circled wagons around him. And I just thought, you know, this is somebody's pet trans as, as we like to say. And wouldn't you know it, all of a sudden, Fionn on July 4th, so the very day after, literally it was like 24 hours later that I noticed, Fionn launched his own campaign for the facial feminization surgery. And that was it. And I knew I had to include him. So I began looking at those four, what the similarities were, what the attraction was to certain women who felt like they had to hang on to some kind of idea. At that point in May, Jennifer Billick had already written a wonderful article called Deconstructing the... Um, Jesus just left my mind, Julian. I don't know if you can remember. Deconstructing the Good Trans Woman. That was... That was the title. Jennifer wrote that in early May. And about a week later, I believe it was just one week later, Julia Long wrote the article, A Meaningful Transition. And what Julia did was she brought up the same, I want to say players or characters that Jennifer had, which was Debbie Hayton and Christina Harrison, two men who were invited to speak by Women's Place UK. And so those two same people came up in Julia's article. But what Julia did that was different than what Jennifer had written about was because Julia is a Brit, she's got access to seeing things on the BBC and she had a news, um, a little BBC sort of biography stop or something like that, where they had done an, uh, they had done an intimate portrait, you know, going into Debbie Hayton's home. And the way that Julia Long led into that hyperlink that's in her article, both of these, um, Actually, hers is an uncommon ground, Julia's is, and Jennifer's Deconstructing the Good Trans Woman is on her, um, I want to say that it's on her blog. I could be wrong. It might be an uncommon ground as well. I don't recall. But I had read both of those, and they were brilliant. And when I got to Julia's, and she really dissected what had happened with Women's Place UK, and she called out Julie Bindle. I was really surprised. I didn't know that that had happened. And it just the hypocrisy of the whole thing. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's two things that I really hate liars and hypocrites. And of course, I've done both in my life. I mean, we're all human, we've done those things, but to consistently do that and use that as your, as your thing, you know, 24 seven, which is why I never underwent um, the experimental testosterone, which I was being, um, which was being peddled to me on the streets, along with my other more, quote, masculinized, whatever, uh, not gender non-conforming lesbian friends. The idea of 24-7, this trickery, I realized that if I had done that, when I looked down the line, I would have just been disgusted with myself to think that I would have been trying to control everybody around me and go along on that sort of ride, you know, to... Uh, Can you backtrack one sec and explain what had Bindle done? If, if, I'm, if I'm correct in what Julia had described was that Ju um, Julie Bindle was involved with inviting, I believe, both Debbie Hayton and Christina Harrison. There were going to be three speakers, I believe, and I think this was in late 2018. Um, 
because I wasn't there. And I, I mean, the thing about a meaningful transition that's so wonderful, the way that Julia weaves it, is that, yes, she brings up these two men who are pretending that they're women and they're really, uh, particularly with, with Debbie Hayton, who has admitted he's just an AGP. Um, there were three places for women to speak about this, this gender ideology movement and what was going on. And Julie Bindle, I believe, was apparently in charge of who those three people would be to speak. And it was herself and those two men. And that was the thing that I recalled. And I had been already reading Julia's work for a while. And it, again, that really just, it was another sort of nail in the coffin. So while I had already been thinking about writing this article and then more stuff was coming out, by Fionn's, you know, crowdfunder that happened with such a huge amount of money also, 25,500 pounds, to literally have his face ripped open. Then to see the very first tweet that I saw was a woman who I will never um, understand, but and I will also never rip her to pieces for the incredible work that she has done, uh, in the past, and I'm I'm not following right now what Kathleen Stock is is doing currently. I do know that she's talking about gender issues, but that she came out with "I'll donate Fionn," and I literally was I was lying in bed when I saw this this Twitter feed, and I had to jump out of bed and sort of throw up in my mouth a little. And it's amazing because so many women reached out to me and told me the same. How they that was the peak trans moment for them was. Kathleen Stock literally saying, you know, in in public, I'll donate Fionn. I don't know how many people she even thought would peak trans at that point, but it happened. I mean, women were just absolutely felt betrayed and shocked. Well, of course, you know, many people will just come back to you and say, I saw this on Twitter, even though Stock has me blocked. I saw loads of people talking about it. And some of the uh, back talk was, well, she's free to do with her money what she wants, which in a capitalist world is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. She and others are free to do that. And, and Bindo's double take of calling trans women women when it suits her and then running stories about a man in a dress attacked me also feeds the fire and it's another own goal. So mm -hmm. I've speak, spoken to, as you, many women across the straight talk in feminism to the nice feminist, let's have tea, she, you're my BFF. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but agree with your side of that arc because it is first of all very confusing for the general populace that's listening to this debate that these are the types that watch either American football, rugby, soccer, whatever. And they are watching this like what in the hell is happening? Are these women crazy or are the men in dresses crazy? Because we all know one thing, most everyone in society, including the trans advocates themselves, know quite well that men cannot be women. Let's just say that outright. So there's this theater going on where some of the trans friendly folks are pretending that their BFFs are really women, but we they don't even believe it. Then mm -hmm. you've got the gender critical feminists and this is a group ranges from leftists to more conservative sides of that spectrum. And women are looking to Bindel and Stock and many others who've done, gosh, Bindel's work in trafficking and mm -hmm. quote unquote sex work and prostitution and surrogacy, brilliant stuff. No one can mm -hmm. fault her 
with right. what she has done in those fields. But it does send a wave of uncertainty amongst women who've been on the ground with this thinking, why are you playing both sides of the fence here? Because that's what this is. It's a yeah. tactic. There's a severity here where mm -hmm. you have women fighting women on first political purity. How far to the left are you really, right? The women in the UK who've been getting arrested, also Posey, um, getting their doors knocked down by the police. These are lower middle class, working class women by and large. Posey's put her neck out there. But very few of what Jyoti Brar calls the bourgeois feminists who have taken over feminism, and I think it would apply to some of the women who've attacked you, these women are not putting their neck out. They are not doing activism. They tend to do very safe speaking gigs, publishing and right-wing media. Meanwhile, they run around telling Julia Long that she's collaborated with the right wing in the US, which was totally unfounded. And so there seems to be this very strange spiral where they do what the hell they want. They collaborate with the right. They go and talk to Tory leaders to speak in parliament, et cetera, et cetera. But when it suits them, they finger point at the likes of you and others who are working across the aisle because this is not a left-right issue. Anyone who's been on the ground for five seconds knows this. And anyone who's been on the ground for two seconds knows it's the right that's going to print articles. It's the right that's going to speak out. The left is cowering. So what do you think is driving this puritanism, not just on Twitter, but it's on social media primarily, to shut down the likes of you? I mean, I read your article. It was excellent. You go after the contradiction within their position, which is basically, well, I summed it up earlier, but you can't claim that transgender ideology is harmful to women but then at the same time, but these friends, I'll she, her, I'll BFF her, and I'll protect her against those mean lesbians over there. Because there's another problem happening within the bourgeois feminists is that there's a lot of homophobia directed at women, even if some of them are gay themselves, but they're safely gay because it's very easy to have a permanent position in a university that's virtually untouchable and critique working class feminists who are saying, hey, we are not going to kowtow to this. In a sense, the capitulation to saying pronouns, preferred pronouns and calling someone a trans woman, a complete fiction has to end and they don't want to end it. They think they're being smart. They have a strategy. It's not a good optic, right? I'll tell you, Jillian, the day that that came out uh, was very interesting because you know, it comes out, the Uncommon Ground comes out out of the UK, and that's hours ahead of, of the United States. Um, the publisher, for some reason, uh, and he's wonderful, Dan Fisher has really been a great ally in this whole thing, you know, publishing these articles. He didn't, for some reason, get in a very last tweet. It was, a, it was an image that was the sort of boom pop pow of my whole story, and it was where one of the many tweets that Buck later deleted, where she was yelling at a woman who had been gang raped and had it on video, they put it on video on Pornhub. And there was another woman attacking her who was also in the porn industry along with Buck. And Buck was yelling at this, at this woman who, you know, basically might as well be yelling at her 14 year old self. And 
and the, the, the image of that didn't show up until about 24 hours after the article came out. So I think people started reading it and then it was sort of like at the end and it was kind of had its own, you know, had its own punch. But when that image came out, I had friends call me. I had people text me privately. They said, don't look at Twitter. I said, oh, is it bad? They said, it's really bad. I said, okay, fine. I'm not looking at it. Other people don't look at Facebook. <laughs> and do you know the very first person that, and I've not had any exchanges with her before. I call her Kelly J, as you just said, Posey Parker. She sent me the kindest, well, it was the kindest thing that somebody sent me a, a photo. It was a, a screenshot of what Kelly had done with the Facebook page for Standing for Women on Facebook. And she had posted something about the mean girls are after Joey. And she wrote Bravo. And then she privately wrote me and we had a very nice exchange. And you asked me, why do I think this is going on? Class. I think a lot of it has to do with class. I'm not somebody that has a PhD. Like many women I know, I'm an autodidact. I can speak two languages. That's kind of that. I'm not somebody that has some, you know, position somewhere. I mean, I've, I've worked retail. I ran a movie theater for years, as I said, and I've been a house painter for much of my career. I have noticed when I've had conversations with women who are, you know, with degrees and whatnot, there have been very few that really treat me equally. Julie Long is one of those women. I know that Kelly J does not come from a bourgeois background. You bring that term up, it's, it's interesting because it's not used as much in America. Um, but I always say when just about anything happens in whether it's a larger world community of women that are speaking or whether it's in your own town where you're working in a nonprofit and trying to do something for girls or something, if the issue of class is not dealt with on a core level within that group of women or women and men when we're working together with men, if that issue is not dealt with, what I've experienced here anyway in the United States, is that that is something that ultimately will cause a crash. I know that people always talk about racism and of course the racism is rampant in the United States and in organizations as well. If we talk about all the isms, you know, ableism and uh, xenophobia and, you know, all of these things are, are, are horrific, but class, I feel sub separates us way more than race does. I think that race is used as a, pol a political tool against us from the government and, you know, various factions. But when it comes down to it and you've got three, say three women, and they all have a mission and they want to do something. I found class seems to hit all the time. I've had it used directly against me when I've disagreed with a, a potential for like writing a mission statement or whatnot. I'll say something and someone will laugh and say, well, you've always been more radical, Joey. And, they, and they're saying that. And I said, and you say that as if it's something bad. So what do you mean? And then they're like, well, they don't want to say it out loud, but you know that what they want to say is that I've been on the fringes and the next thing that's in their minds, of course, is this is, you know, I'm talking to somebody who's a graduate of whatever and they have a PhD, you know, they have some letters past their name either before or after. So 
honestly, Julian, that's what I feel like I've experienced most of my uh, life as, uh, you know, as a lesbian growing into an activist, growing into somebody who produced a lot of events and concerts and things and began working with uh, people who were very challenged, um, impoverished, especially here in the Bay Area and the Oakland area. Um, class just comes up, comes up like an ugly, ugly thing every time. And um, I feel like when you're talking about not just the bourgeois, but a certain group of the big girls, I guess, um, you know, I feel like there are a number of other people who've come in, a number of, of, of very few men, but the men that have come in that at first seem to be really great allies. And it was very rare. And now I feel like any of those men, any of the men that were even rising their head above the, the you know, the pulpit there for a moment, that really their shelf life is done. And that we women really need to look at what are we doing to advance anything? Because as long as we stay in the same paradigms, as long as we don't deal with some of these very core issues with each other, this just repeats itself. These, these things are going to repeat themselves over and over again. And America is too large of a country, it seems, to be able to gather the spirits, you know, together. I don't mean spirit is in spiritual. I mean, I mean bodies, living women that are, are, are beings here. There's been a lot of discontent amongst most feminists I've spoken to, at the very least, who find themselves sidelined by the women in this movement, as you mentioned with PhDs. I'm Full disclosure, I have one myself, but mm. I'll be honest, I've seen it. And I was kicked out of a Slack group for mentioning the fact that I found the approach to women who disagree with her elitist. Mm. I don't think it's fair that this person came on the scene three years ago, not even. And there were women who've been working on this longer than I, and I've been on this nine years. So, and mm. I said, I don't think that this was the approach to slander women to make up that they're taking money from the Heritage Foundation mm -hmm. to say things like, it's a bad look. Uh, a bad look for who? I mean, you spend all your waking hours complaining about these women. No one thinks you're collaborating, that you're on the same team. So it shouldn't be a bad look for you. Mm -hmm. It's maybe if in your estimation, if that's true, it's a bad look for them. But you, know, you spend your waking hours bashing them. So no one really allies the two of you. And, and this kind of non sequitur that would just swim about the Twitter sphere. And I found it really devastating because women do gravitate to some of the bigger names. They do. I mean, so many women have even taken on the Twitter names themselves of some of their icons. I support mm -hmm. named person. Mm -hmm. We saw it with J.K. Rowling, who's a person who certainly will suffer far less economically, reputationally even though she's taken a bashing, all of us know that she's going to be vindicated. And I think she knows it too. Uh, the difference is that when you've got people who've been on the scene for a few seconds, or some of these women who were on it, then they apologized and disappeared for years and came back on even after I got involved. I don't think that a lot of women appreciate 
the refereeing. No one elected these women to, as I referenced, the Grand Poobah. They're not our Grand Poobah. We're not in the Flintstone Lodge. And who elected them to be judge and jury and executioner? This, this causes real problems within not only what they call the gender critical movement, but this causes problems amongst women because women and men know that any of the people that you mentioned in your article, Fionn is not a woman. They, everyone knows that Scott Nugent is not a man. Buck Angel, and let's even skip to someone you didn't mention, who's got a serious problem historically. You can't even, I've tried to edit her Wikipedia page. Uh, let's just say I'm on the verge of permanently being banned from Wikipedia, but Pat Califia, who comes from your neck of the woods, who she has been involved in pedophilia. She transitioned mm -hmm. in the 90s, sort of yes and no, but long story short, this person identifies as. Now, Califia is another inconvenient truth for this movement, but you can't state it. So we're doing ourselves in a sense, no favors to say we're gender critical, as you mentioned, on the one hand, and then with the other hand, let's write out a check for someone's facial effeminization surgery. No offense to these men who feel like they are in the wrong face. But tell that to my face. I had skin cancer a few years ago on my nose, the only part of my face I actually like. We all have problems, no? You know, what's interesting is that this, in, in what you bring up, this thing about these, I want to say academics, um, they aren't the ones that are joining me on these uh, on this mission to go after the clinics either. For some reason, they seem to not really have the time or that's not their focus. Or as one said to me, that's not really my wheelhouse. And I said, what is your wheelhouse? I don't understand. Because the idea these days of protesting in the United States after what we experienced as a country last year in 2020 with lockdown and after the whole, you know, with the race riots and the this and the that, and then everybody all of a sudden waking up and realizing that BLM got captured by the trans lobbyists many, many years ago now. The idea of doing any kind of civil disobedience in this country is arguably dangerous. And it takes guts to want to even do that. And I don't see the people that are these academics really taking that plunge. And I don't see them doing like what you have, the uh, well, in, in the UK with, you know, I just saw Kelly J announcing at the end of May, the Speaker's Corner is going to come up again. This idea of changing minds literally on the street corner or in front of a clinic or in front of a psychotherapy office, which... I will plan on doing at some point where I know psychotherapists that are right beelining, they are fast streaming young people right into the arms of the clinicians who are ready to hand them puberty blockers like candy. That to me is the most basic thing that we can do is to raise our voices and make the time and do that. And that's, that's just always been part of my organizing. And it's not something that I find a lot of, a lot of people who have spent years, I'm sure as, as you have in, you know, in schooling, I remember having a good friend who was a psychiatrist, and he told me that getting a PhD was one of the most masochistic things that people could do. <laughs> and I saw him go through. I think that there's just, again, depending on countries that we're in, 
the divide in the United States is really the people that have gone through all the education that they have and those that didn't. And you know what's interesting, Julian, is especially this time of lockdown, what's shown where real hearts are. As I see some people who have PhDs in my community, they're working at the market. The schools, you know, got got shut down for a period of time and some of their colleagues had more points than they did or more years than they had or whatever. They are working at other jobs. Some of them have gone into construction. They never had done that before. So I think that COVID in a way, there was a shift with um, some people, at least in the population. And maybe that's going to affect this so-called women's movement at some point or what we're doing in terms of trying to join together in different projects to, to fight this beast. I mean, it's interesting, you've been involved for about nine years. When I see women in social media talking about how long they've been at this and they just can't believe how exhausted they are and they can't believe this and they can't believe that. And I have to laugh because it's almost 40 years. It's almost 40 years for me. And again, to watch your entire culture get decimated. Um, you know, if I didn't have another culture, another niche to go into, which is jazz and helping to promote female jazz instrumentalists, because that's a whole other topic of conversation where oppression is happening. But if I hadn't had that to go into, I think I would have gone literally insane. Sort of, you know, every store that I've gone into, just walking down the street, the, the entire time I worked at the movie theater, I was trolled several times. And one of the executive directors of, of a film festival, a very world's oldest and longest running film festival, literally tried to have me fired from my job, claiming I was a transphobe. Never had, had any interactions with her, never had done anything else. And why? Because somebody or she found herself that my Twitter feed, my personal Twitter feed, which had absolutely nothing to do with the work and the good job that I was doing, you know, managing this theater, tried to get me fired. So I have since been fired from a different job. Um, I know that many of us are self-employed. Many of us are older that are doing the things that we're doing. And it's sad that that's where a lot of us have to be in order to really deal with this fight literally on the ground. So until some of those that are living on their, um, you know, in their lofty offices and universities, getting to be paid just for thinking and tweeting and, and all that. What a luxury that would be. That's all I can think of. What a luxury that would be. Meanwhile, I'm still painting houses. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. This is the problem. This is why Jyoti Brar's interview the other day is so important, I think, for these women to listen to. And I'm not trying to demonize. I hate this whole, you've got privilege I posted an article yesterday from uh, Inside Higher Education, I believe, where it's showing the effect of lockdown on academics who don't have the luxury of tenured positions, 
I was an adjunct academic in New York. I paid my rent and barely ate. Okay. So these, it's not that everyone just like junior doctors in the UK are barely surviving as well, especially in cities like London. But I think it's really important when you've got academics who were on the scene for not even six months when this happened in January of 2019, writing Parker and Long are a liability. I'd be mortified to be ambushed like that. And, and then saying that their jaunt is setting back a productive conversation. This person is delusional. I'll tell you that much because I've spoken to women who not only disagree with her, but they have yet to see her at a protest. She's not getting arrested and, and saying things like, I fundamentally disagree with their actions and cozying up to the conservative right and harassing a trans woman. Um, no, transgenderism is a fiction. So the minute you start marrying, and this is something we can get to in a minute, why we even use this ridiculous term, I won't, thanks to a conversation I had with Julia long years ago. And I have to wonder why people are not able to see very glaringly the disconnect of some of these women who are harassing, because this was a form of harassment that these women engaged in, harassing working class women for doing political activism. And I'm going to segue to an interview I had with Harry Belafonte, who is no small fries here, but he said it very clearly. Dr. King and I would go and meet with the Ku Klux Klan. We did it because we knew the only way to create dialogue was to sit up, cozy up to, as someone wrote about Kelly J. and Long, to the conservative right. You have to build bridges by sitting with people. You have to build bridges by discussing. And for anyone sitting in a university position, harassing women on Twitter, because with the number of followers some of these women have, they know quite well what they're getting into. Happened to me. I want to get back to what you said just now about jazz music and your time working at a movie theater. Because when I was looking at your bio, which I read out before you came on, like you, I'm a huge fan of cinema. Uh, it was my escape from crazy parents. Uh, I think I escaped even into some bad musicals. Anyone who says Easter Parade is a great movie is lying. But I watched it, if we're supposed to believe that Fred Astaire is a desirable hunk. And... I would say, though, your, your influences of Gordon Parks and Diane Arbus right on, your, your love of large format magazines like Look, brilliant. Uh, Look mm. was one of the first magazines that covered the story of Emmett Till and the shocking story of a, of a proved killing in Mississippi. And it was images mm -hmm. that put in jazz also that pushed people to see the injustice. Ironically, die in a fire and, and threats to rape women. I just saw one yesterday. There's a long video tweet going around of a guy threatening to kill us. Uh, I'm sure Twitter won't get around to taking it down, but that doesn't seem to have an effect. But jazz did. And as you know, Strange Fruit. Strange Fruit was one of those songs that was not only one of Billie Holiday's best known songs, but it broke that terrain where white people all over the country had to come to grips with the strange fruit hanging, right? So we see where social revolution through photography and music happened. And I was my whole life brought up on music. It was jazz because I grew up in New Orleans from the age of 10. 
it was Indian raga music because my father's Indian and we got that on Saturday and my brother and I would moan. We'd be like, ah, oh, not that again. <laughs> Tell me how photography and jazz fits into your life and how you've been affected over the gender movement from this. Well, the whole, the whole thing is, it really is, like I said, being growing up a tomboy and a gender non-conforming kid and always looking to film and escaping that way where a lot of, where a lot of my friends were huge readers and, you know, went into the, so many people I know that, you know, lived in their rooms or the libraries or whatever. I was more into not just watching movies, but reading about them. And I grew up around the Los Angeles area as well. And so I was one of those kids that wanted so badly to work in the Hollywood industry somehow. Uh, my parents were just not educated in that way to be able to encourage me around any of that. But the idea of photographs, as you said, in the large photographs, the, the fashion, the way that Gordon Parks took these incredible um, photos of fashion. Otherwise, I don't think I would have been really interested in it. And then sort of juxtaposing that with, like I said, Diane Arbus reading about her life and the ordinary and the black and white shots of inner city people. Um, those are things that have informed me always as an adult, as I said, for years, I've been an event producer and I started to work in jazz primarily with helping local, and this is around the San Francisco Bay area, which had a, has a pretty large jazz community, nothing like New York, but a large jazz community. With the advent of the internet and social media and these tools, visual tools, and also tools of connect, connecting people, I, um, with the love of film and I, I, I got a camcorder as we saw that the digitization of cameras really made it much, um, it democratized, you know, access to imagery, um, to the little people's lives, to the working class lives, to people that, you know, could, I mean, now everybody that has a phone can, you know, even make movies. I don't know how to do that, but I have a camcorder and I began to help, I do love jazz and I began to help um, really out of feeling a necessity for some jazz instrumentalists that were right here in my area when you were very good, but were not being asked. They were not being platformed. They were not being included in the number of places that did provide, you know, the cafes and some were nightclubs where people would pay money just to go see jazz, not just bang forks, you know, and knives together. And I decided that um, one person in particular, a woman who uh, is a jazz harpist, she had a lot going against her in terms of the other people that were in the area. And the fact that I did start realizing that jazz was for women, they were mostly supposed to sing or play the piano. But if a woman got on a horn, if she was playing drums, if she did anything loud, um, they weren't being hired. So in 2015, actually, while also, you know, looking at this issue, of course, around uh, this gender stuff, I ended up ho holding a petition against one of the world's largest jazz festivals, the Monterey Jazz Festival here in Monterey, California. I looked 
I started looking at their years and years of their festival. And I looked at their roster since the year they began to what was, like I said, I, I can't remember now if it was 2015 or 16, but I saw that over a number of years, even in one decade, there were hundreds and hundreds of male musicians. And there were really a handful of women and most of them were vocalists because that was the acceptable thing. And it still is that way. But a wonderful musician in the Bay Area, her name is Destiny Muhammad. She and her husband had been plugging away. He was working as her manager for a long time, been plugging away, trying to get that she moved from that Celtic harp world into jazz, much as Alice Coltrane had done, much as Dorothy um, Ashby had done. And a lot of people, when when she was saying, I, I'm just not able to get gigs here or there, you know, I'm wondering if you can help me out. I said, I'd like to see if I can help you out. What I did immediately was to find an image that a local photographer had taken of her at a concert. And it was a color image. And I turned it to black and white. And I showed it to Destiny and her husband, Chris, and said, I would like you, see if I can help you. I'd like to brand you. I'd like to really brand you. Now, they had their own branding, but they also had a lot of other things going on. And I felt like from my eye, that Look Magazine eye, that, you know, seeing the images of Gordon Parks and fashion and everything, I saw this beautiful woman who was also not young, not like she was terribly old. She was getting close to 50, black woman, long, long dreads and she sang sometimes as well. And she was playing jazz and she was using a harp. And I literally had people tell me when I went out to try to get some gigs for her, because I thought, well, I'm just going to try this, you know, I've got nothing to lose. And they would say, she plays a harp. That's not jazz right away. So like with a lot of things, I just felt more encouraged. And I ended up creating a jazz channel it's called Behind the Curtain TV. There are some others that might be hard to find, but Behind the Curtain TV. And I just started shooting, working with her, working with some other local female jazz instrumentalists and vocalists as well, but um, putting up videos and doing this sort of guerrilla style video work and just catching them. I never plugged the I never connected the video camera to the soundboard. I, I would move around and I literally would, like on a guitarist, I would move the camera so that it was moving along, you know, those sort of sexy lines as people might describe it, you know, along the strings onto the hands of the man or the woman that was playing the instrument and then pull out, you know, for a long shot. So I have about 350 videos over a, a number of years that I began doing this sort of promotion and the, I ended up protesting uh, my own protest. I didn't, I'm not talking about big signs, but I, I handed out leaflets, educating people right outside the gates of the Monterey Jazz Festival, telling them that what they had just paid for or what they were about to go in and pay for was that there were literally only two women, maybe that were jazz instrumentalists while they had maybe three female vocalists over an entire weekend. So we're talking that every year, the Monterey Jazz Festival on average for three days of music would host about and platform and we'll say, you know, like a hundred men on instruments and just a handful of women would be showcased in these things. And so 
I went up against it. I met somebody locally who was a trumpet player, someone who'd played with uh, Laura Nero, her and her partner, years before. And she had a she had a band, and she was uh, going to be doing a a rally in front of the San Francisco Jazz Center. And it was Wynton Marcellus who was coming with the, you know, Lincoln Jazz Center and the Lincoln Jazz Orchestra, which has had the same, I believe, 19 men for over 20 something years. He's never hired a female jazz instrumentalist. And that was in 2014, it had already been like 25 years, I think that had been going on. Well, what we've seen across the country because of the oppression of women in general in the music world, like in every aspect of, of our lives, they started, it was about 75%, I think at that point, had switched over in the orchestra world to blind auditions. And that's what this woman here, Ellen Sealing, really opened my eyes and taught me um, what was going on. This was, you know, in the jazz world, and I could see it as well. I'd started working with Destiny, but I began working with a lot of men who were, who were in the jazz world. And I saw this discrepancy on such an enormous level that for me, it was like, get up a petition. So I put something on change.org. I went there by myself. I had never been. And I handed out flyers and everything. And then I went into the festival and I got to experience it, which I have done now several years in a row, except for lockdown. But it's just, it's one thing that when you've been an activist at all, when you first step into any world, whether you're looking at for children or for girls or women, you're trying to advocate for an, an illness that's not being studied or something like that. Once you stick your neck out there in a way and you just start talking to people, most average people don't even understand that this is going on, that things are going on. And of course, that's what we're finding now with this pediatric gender clinics. And it's amazing to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who are willing to listen and they do want to understand. In your article, you basically were saying it's all fine that people gather around you to denounce childhood gender transition, but you too are part of the problem because we can't just say it's harmful until 18, but from 18 on, it's okay. The ideology is still there. We're all swimming in it. And the idea that for you to have access to the Monterey Jazz Festival might involve you pulling a Billy Tipton, right? Just for our listeners, Billy Tipton was a jazz musician who has been nominated as a transgender identified female. She cross-dressed. She got married, adopted, I believe, two children with her wife. It's all documented in Marjorie Gerber's wonderful book, Vested Interests. And upon Billy Tipton's death, lo and behold, the family found out their father and their husband was a woman. So... It was the coroner who had the due, due diligence to tell them. Now, this is one of many dead lesbians who's been transgendered after death, the postmodern trans phenomenon. I don't think that there's a bridge long enough to meet two sides of this debate, Joey, where on the one side, people are saying it's always been, and they, they, they throw out some Egyptian goddess from 5,000 years ago. And then Billy Tipton and Jan Morris, et cetera, et cetera. It's like all these people were tra trans has always existed. 
The other day on Twitter, someone said something about the stage performance and men are serious about becoming women on stage. And I'm like, well, there's a reason for that. Women were exiled from all social life until a drop of a second in human history. Like if we're to look at the last hundred years as anything within human history, and we go back to the evolution of humans, this was a second. So women have been around a second, having some sort of agency to include the agency to leave the house to get trampled by horses under the actions of feminists in the UK, to having the privilege to be raped by men because they were walking in a park at night, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem is that on the one hand, you have a super bro dude misogynist movement that is being pushed by the wokest of dudes with uneven haircuts and blue hair. On the other side, you've got women like us saying, what planet are you on? Like you can't just suspend science when it suits you because all these people on the other side, they know what COVID is, they mask up. Why do I know this? Because this whole ideology is drilled and fomented by the upper middle class, the elite people with PhDs, people in high positions, and they drill this outwards, the media as well, because they're all patting each other's backs and they're all writing each other's checks. And we're getting it 24 seven. Like I said recently, you'd almost think that the majority of the population was trans and that COVID and trans were almost similar in importance, right? Because if I were a Martian landing on Earth, that's what I would take away from our media. So we've got this notion from these people that science is everything that we know it to be, except when it comes to women's bodies. Then you bigot, Joey. How dare you? You know, like it's it's amazing the kind of suspense of rational thought that goes on. And so back to the earlier discussion is why is it that lesbians seem to be so hated by bourgeois feminists who can't seem to square the fact that working class women should be emanating the messages, not us. Those of us with higher education degrees, in a large part, we're responsible for what's happened. I raised my hand. I taught queer theory. I taught queer theory at New York University. I taught queer theory at the New School for Social Research. I taught cinema and queerness at Hunter College, for instance. Did I do it in this madness of today? No. I did it in the early days of queer theory when queer theory was about homosexuality. It was about bringing out of the woodwork lesbian nitrate kisses. I taught that, for goodness sakes. And Barbara Hammer was certainly not saying she was a man because she shaved her head, right? This is one of the many sharks that have been jumped. At the same time, I think Those of us coming from higher education need to STFU and listen to women on the ground and participate, just like Harry Balafanti went and participated in marches. He sat down at tables with the Ku Klux Klan. Why is it that in the UK, a society that's renowned for not dealing with its class issues, still perpetuating this, but amongst feminists? Oh boy, it's just such a you know a golden question. It's I'm I'm still I'm still uh, I can't believe you brought up one of my favorite musicians with Billy Tipton because I've been struggling with an article that I'm writing about this horrific film that I happen to be able to preview called No Ordinary Man. I don't know if you happen to even see that, but they have completely transed Billy Tipton's life with all of these 
women who think that they're men. It's that's a whole other story, but it's it's interesting because I was just working on a piece about that. Why? It, again, it's 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 not just class. I've been reading about the relationships between children and the and the friendships that they have. There's a book called Best Best of Friends and Worst of Enemies, and it's kind of um, it's sort of an everyday psychology psychological look into the lives of children. But the thing about women and girls and this circling around the wagons that we tend to do when it comes to certain you know whether pet projects or people or something like that. I think that as women, we are more prone in general to want to protect people and things and, and whatnot. And it goes back to something you said earlier. And, and I think that Jyoti, I can't remember, I heard that interview, it was fantastic. I think that she brought this about, Did you, I can't remember if you two talked about kindness, but it's that whole thing of how we're supposed to be nice and kind and this and that. And truly women are, you know, we're geared up to protect, to defend, and we will do it because we're also taught to, to have so much self-hatred, I think, throw ourselves under the bus. We'll do it to our own detriment. And we, do, we, we continue to do that in many, many ways so that women will compartmentalize. They won't think of the, the hypocrisy that they're, they're you know, espousing while they're you know, in their situations, you know, it's, it's interesting, this thing about class, because when you, we talk about Kelly J and, and um, what's gone on, you know, with the UK, and you're much more familiar with that landscape, but what's happened here in this, this so-called women's, I want to say so-called women's movement, because again, there's so much in it that doesn't reflect who I am, but there is somebody who I have so much admiration for, and I think she's probably the most dangerous American uh, woman uh, today is Beth Stelzer with Save Women's Sports. I mean, there's a working class woman, a mother, you know, someone who is a wife um, and just realized just a couple years ago, came into this thing with this madness quite by accident because she was taking up jet powerlifting as a hobby. And she's very working class. And it's, I love that. And I, you know, there are others in this country who we, we shall see it actually in the next, you know, year or two, how things sort of shake out, but it's, it, I mean, we're, it's in the Western world, right? The UK and the United States and, and whatnot, this idea of somebody like Harry Belafonte doing what he did, I think that that is more in the past, that there were people who were willing to have that kind of celebrity to understand where they had come from at the same time, be able to combine that and do use their platform. I mean, Audrey, Hep Audrey Hepburn did that. Since you're a cinephile, um, uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn, there's a new documentary out on her that is wonderful. It shows how she used her platform even years after she had dropped out of the movie industry and still could raise lots and lots of money with UNICEF, just her presence. And she didn't need to do that. So when you take something in, uh, in, the, in the UK, you know, they have their royals. In the US, we have our celebrities. And no matter how people are intellectual here, 
they still love the people that love the camera and the camera loves them and they want those people to succeed. And here we will in this country vote for those people in positions they have absolutely no business being in or do they? I mean, in my own state of California, when I saw that Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to be running, I used to tell everybody that is going to be our governor and they would laugh at me. When I saw that Donald Trump threw his hat in, I said, that's it, we're done. People said to me, that's ridiculous, there's no way. And now in the state of California, I can tell you, and maybe we can talk about this after it happens, who my next governor is going to be. Because they do not announce without knowing that there are millions and millions of dollars behind Bruce Jenner becoming the next governor of California. That's what I'm looking at, a state where the insurance commissioner got into political bed with a woman with a tiny little organization in San Diego called Trans Family Services. And they got into political bed together. She has transed her own child and Ricardo Lauda sneaks right before 2021 comes around and eliminates the age limit on girls to have their breasts removed for insurance to pay for it. Things like that, everything, all the dots are connected. Well, it's interesting that you're pointing to so many activists doing things. I've interviewed Beth. I think we need to also discuss something that the bourgeois feminists refuse. And I'm thinking back to, again, the incident that made me wake the hell up about the class divide within feminism was the long Kelly J. Mitchell incident in D.C. in uh, January 2019. And I have real issues with women who own homes, have academic titles, and then they run around saying, well, if we carried on the Julia Long's he's a man strategy, if that had worked, we wouldn't be in this fucking mess, would we? Well, actually... I had to remind her, those are the strategies that do work because it was because of those women's actions that American women saw it. Why did American women see it? Because right after that happened, who wrote about it? Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan is someone who can reach both sides of the political aisle because he's a white gay male who's a conservative. And that sparked fire under the asses of many in the US. And I think it's really shocking that people don't understand what activism looks like. And here we have now, where so many women are on the ground between the UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand. I interviewed Renee Gerlich recently. Wonderful activism. And she's been on it for years as well, not just around this issue, but women's rights. How can we have it where you have bourgeois feminists in elite institutions? And I'm not, I'm not imputing all of them because there's many women, not just Julia Long, there are many women with PhDs, even within institutions, working on working class issues. They're doing, Selena Todd I interviewed, she has an excellent book on working class women, it is so important. But why are so many women making this a class segregation issue? Because it is a form of class apartheid when you have people saying, well, we're gonna smash up these women reputationally but because they spoke and they make it look like we're associated with them. They want 
they want to have their cake and to eat it too. You can't say they have nothing to do with us because we know better. And at the same time, when these women speak, say they're, they're reflecting badly on us, even though you've gone out of your way to say, we have nothing to do with them. How can this rift be solved? If you're talking about, again, this idea that this is between women, I honestly, I just sort of stick my feet in there every once in a while. But I personally have become so pained about um, feeling uh, frustrated with this thing of working just with women, just with this idea of the women's movement. So Julian, what I've done personally, this thing about the clinics and finally getting these protests really off the ground is I'm talking to parents. I'm talking to people that are completely, they've led lives of, you know, Christianity, faith, uh, different, you know, Catholics. I'm an atheist and I let them know right off. And I, you know, I'm a homosexual. There are these people, the parents are the ones that are really feeling the pain of this the most. They're the ones that are first affected by what's going on with their, their kids. They get blindsided by this stuff. So I'm having these Zoom sessions with parents and then other people that aren't parents that feel very strongly about this issue. We're having these discussions. Here I am just hoping that I am helping them to understand about what our rights are as Americans for civil disobedience. What does it mean to actually do one of the oldest traditions that we have, which is peaceful protesting. And conversations happen and dialogues happen. And the men and women that are in these sessions, they'll say something like in the middle of talking about how to protest and how to protect yourself during a protest. I'm talking, I go into talking about some very, very nasty potential situations or danger. All of a sudden, somebody might say, can I ask a question? And it has nothing to do with the protests, but all of a sudden somebody in the, you know, it'd be like 20 people in the room or when it gets down to maybe a little less than that 15 or so, and a man or a woman asking a question about something that has to do with, with feminism or women's movement or some historical thing or something that I realize somebody else, or maybe I just said something, assuming that the whole audience in that room knows what I'm talking about. Those kinds of basic conversations, I'm getting so much more enjoyment out of things that are more elementary where I am politically or where my political thought has been or, you know, my, my history around that, I'm getting much more satisfaction, pleasure, and knowing that that's something that I'm doing that's literally moving to action on the streets than sitting around in a nonprofit, as I've done before, trying to scramble out through the classism and through the isms and through the, you know, the infighting and the um, girl, you know, the, the mean girl stuff that can go on. Um, Again, just talking about, you know, working in groupings of women. I think there's just, there's such an amount of, it sounds corny. It's just such an amount of self-hatred that I think when women see another woman who's doing something and maybe they would like to do it, but it's too, it's too scary or a woman who's written a book and somebody else always has wanted to get something published. And it doesn't matter what that woman wrote about. They're envious. The envy, the jealousy, all of those little things that people talk about. 
it's been extremely hard as a woman who hasn't been recognized as a woman in, in, in a lot of my life. It's been very uh, sad. But being in the trades and working for the many years that I have in the painting trades, it is a very different culture. We know that men talking amongst themselves is very different. Are men prone to gossip? Of course. Are they prone to jealousy and envy and all the other feelings? Absolutely. But there is something in our socialization that no matter how much, quote, feminism, no matter how woke we are in our feminism, no matter what we've done, hits a certain point that when you get in a room or maybe on Twitter, um, when you get into being in a circle with a certain crowd, there is, there is this tendency to rip each other apart. And I think that it happens in most oppressed, marginalized, different kinds of groups, whether it's through skin color, ethnicity, religion, whatever, there's these, all these things that come up. But amongst women, I find it, it's been the most powerful thing I've experienced in my life, women getting together and creating projects and doing things well. But over time, the most painful and the most hurtful thing that I have seen that women can do. And I do not have an answer for this. I think that, you know, Jyoti hit on some of that the other day. You did, as you're bringing this up about, I'm talking about class. Honestly, Julian, I don't know what else to say, except that the older that I get, the more I want to look for where I feel that I have the most impact. What can I do with any skills that I have? Um, any advantage that I might have in terms of being able to speak. I used to, I used to perform music. So I was, you know, one of those kids that was terrified to get in front of the microphone. And now, you know, I mean, it's been many, many years. Um, that's what happens when you, that's what happens when you go to the Michigan festival in the early years, right? And you have 2000 women all of a sudden when you're used to playing for no more than 40 in a coffee house, <laughs> you do it right away. But I don't think there's any one answer to that. And when I saw what Julia and Kelly J did in that building to that man, I will tell you as and I'm not a patriotic person, but as an American, uh, as a feminist long time, I saw that and I was so pleased. I was so pleased because that was, again, that was a radical act. And we are, as Jennifer Billick says, we're in the 11th hour. I don't know why these women think that they just want to have conferences and do things where they're patting each other on the back or they're doing it in social media, talking about how, how beautiful somebody is, I mean, physically or whatever, and how, you know, this, this constant need to praise each other and like they want to be at a, it's like if you were at a social club or at a party, I don't want to be at those parties if there's somebody there that's a celebrity, I'd love to talk with them alone, but I don't want their autograph. I don't want to try to take some piece of them. I want to have a conversation with them and learn what I can. And you brought it up earlier in the conversation why I don't believe ever anybody who wants to look that fiction and has chosen that fiction and maybe did it a very long time ago. And, you know, I've had friends like that in my life. Um, that they have any place standing at a microphone or writing articles, the only place 
that I think those people have to talk about and go against the medicalization of children, which is what I'm focusing on are the pediatric clinics at this point, because basically, you know, anything over 18 in this country, plastic surgery is a huge, I mean, it's huge. It's huge in Brazil too, right? Plastic surgery is something that adults are, again, you, of course, when people throw at me, well, I have a right, I have a right to do this and that. I said, I never said you didn't have a right. That's not what I'm arguing. That is not what I'm arguing. But the idea that anybody who is in their 40s or 50s or whatever, standing at a microphone anywhere, something that got brought up earlier, when Jennifer Billick wrote this follow-up article after mine, where hers was the, the grooming of the gender-critical movement, she literally called it grooming, and that's, 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 what it, that's what it is, and that's what it was. The disconnect there, it is confusing, not just children, although I think they are the most trapped by this because they are the highest you know, influence, um, especially with internet now. But everybody gets confused. And that's where some of these conversations that I have with people who have asked me, do you want trans people to come? I know this trans person that wants to come and join us. I said, you know, as long as I'm controlling the protests the way that I am and what I'm doing right now, I am choosing not to have that be something that I want the optics to be. Um, some people have already criticized me about that. That's fine. There are other people that are conducting protests in ways that I never would. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's all wrong. Um, and I would never say, oh, they don't have a right to, because that's not the issue to me. It has to do with being responsible and safe. And in the long run, what's the message? If you have somebody like a Fiona Orlander who would be standing in front and protesting at a clinic, that is a disconnect to me that at this point I can't reconcile. I really can't. Um, I think it's sending a mixed message that's very dangerous because it's making an exception. Again, do as I say, not as I do. That's the message that's really going out. And do as I say and not as I do is not going to work. Jennifer said it's like having somebody who's 24-7 drinking and they get invited to show up and talk about the dangers of alcoholism.
Oh, 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 oh,